2: Pull out your phone, and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today.
1: This is Intelligence Matters, with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours.
2: One of the biggest concerns I have about the 2020 election is, in fact, the degree to which our own domestic divisions have, number one, made it very challenging for us to respond effectively to any foreign interference if it were to occur and if it is occurring, which I I you know, I think most assessments are that it is, at least some level. And two, you know, that divided society really provides such a ripe environment for these kinds of manipulative tactics. And I guess actually one more point on that is that, you know, again, this relates to the COVID conversation, the the sort of polluted information environment that we see in general, whether it's around COVID, whether it's around whole host of other issues, again, really makes for a, a little bit of a, a tinderbox, if you will, where it doesn't take that much to really exacerbate or blow open some of the challenges that we have domestically.
0: So, Laura, what about approaches to election systems? Are we si- still seeing that? And have we seen any different kinds of approaches than what we saw in 2016.
2: In 2020, we haven't seen any reports so far of the targeting of electoral infrastructure. It is an area where we frankly have a lot more visibility than we did in 2016. What I worry about is a scenario in which, you know, a lot of states are um, enabling much greater um, absentee voting um, or mail voting for the November election, rightly so, to help support people's ability to safely vote. But that's going to mean a much slower process to count the ballots. And there's a very good chance that we're not going to know the results right away. And you combine that with potentially a bit of disinformation about what's gone on. And you have a bit of a toxic mix of the potential for essentially, before the results are even announced, foreign actors to stir up doubt in the outcome.
1: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure
0: you have? Or the friends you find along the way? And a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund. Before she joined GMF, she was foreign policy advisor for the Clinton campaign, where she coordinated development of the campaign's national security policies. Prior to that, she served in a range of positions at the State Department and at the White House National Security Council. Laura has been on our show before, and today we're going to get caught up with a foreign threat to the 2020 election. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. So Laura, we're just finishing up a series on COVID and the national security implications of it. And we're starting a new series on the foreign threats to our elections this November. And it's great to have you as the first guest in that series. And maybe the place to start is to remind our listeners what the Alliance for Securing Democracy is and why you started it.
2: Of course, happy to. So, the Alliance for Securing Democracy is a bipartisan and transatlantic initiative um, that is uh, housed at the, the German Marshall Fund. Um, and its mission is to better um, understand and develop the means to counter the threats that authoritarian regimes are posing in their efforts to undermine and interfere in democracies. Um, that's a pretty big writ, and I'm happy to sort of break it down. But, you know, we we focus largely on the sort of non-military space, um, the range of uh, non-traditional asymmetric tools that are used in often what's called sort of the the hybrid space, um, or, you know, some folks talk about it as the You know, the gray zone. Um, But these are tools and tactics that are being used as sort of weapons against our societies and our democratic institutions. And at the Alliance for Securing Democracy, we take the view that um, those attacks on our democracy are very clearly a national security threat. And something that we need to um, be very focused on both building resilience against and, and countering and doing that just to sort of put a fine point on it from a bipartisan perspective, really believing that these are um, issues that require policymakers from across the political spectrum to be united in defense of of our democracy. Because frankly, it's our democracy that gives us the ability uh, to disagree with one another. And we'd like to continue to do that.
0: Exactly. So Laura, before we kind of dive down into the, the threat to the elections, maybe just ask you a couple of questions about COVID. Can you characterize what the Chinese and the Russians are doing with regard to information operations on covid
2: Sure. Um, and I'm going to take them a little bit separately because what the Chinese and Russians are doing are, are a little bit distinct. So the the one thing I want to kind of build um, sort of context for here is that I think in the US, we've often talked about disinformation or information operations in the context of elections, which is what we're going to come to. But these kinds of operations are actually broader tools for authoritarian regimes, in particular, um, or undemocratic actors, to to use the information environment for either geopolitical gain, or commercial gain, or um, you know, basically exercising some form of, of leverage and, and coercive, uh, you know, activity in that space. And COVID has been no exception. We have seen um, Beijing, Moscow, Tehran, um, you know, a whole range of of, um, undemocratic regimes really seek to use this moment both to advance their own objectives and in some cases as as an opportunity to, again, um, cast doubt in people's minds about democratic institutions or democratic governance, um, or... To really degrade the idea of truth, you know, essentially, you know, this idea that um, the whole world is relative, it's impossible to know the facts behind anything. And that's a really destructive framework for um, for democracies, which really rely on quality information for our deliberative um, debates. And so, you know, in the COVID context, we've seen China in particular go on a very aggressive external information campaign um, to essentially deflect blame from its own um, failings in its initial response to the virus and to portray itself as the better partner, the preferred partner for other countries around the world. And in a few of the more aggressive uh, posts or comments that we've seen as part of the strategy actually saying straight out, you know, China's model is proving out better than the democratic model. Um, and so I think it, that's one piece of it. We've also seen actors from the Chinese party state, including Chinese officials um, and state media engage in active disinformation operations. So spreading in particular um, the idea that um, the virus may not have originated in China. In fact, that it may have come from a U.S. bioweapons lab, or maybe it actually started in Italy much earlier than it started in China. But these multiple conflicting conspiracy theories about where the virus may have started, um, again, that feels a lot like the idea here is in part to present, you know, the notion that we may never really be able to know where the virus started. And and so, you know, who can possibly know? Don't blame China. We may never know. So that's really a lot of what we've seen from China. And some of that's a departure from what we've seen it do in the past in its information strategy. Russia has kind of actually done a lot of drafting off of what China and its... Um, information organs have been doing. So Russia has has done, you know, a lot of its typical promotion and amplification of conspiracy theories, some of it again about the origin of the virus, a lot of it just being very critical of, you know, how certain other governments have been handling the virus. But what we've really seen in many ways is is Russia kind of taking a bit of a back seat to the very aggressive information strategy we've seen from China. And the last piece, though, I'll mention as part of that that I think is notable is um, one of my colleagues just published a piece talking about the triad of disinformation that we have seen around COVID-19 between Beijing, Moscow, and Tehran. Um, and I'll note that occasionally Venezuela gets thrown in there as well, where we're seeing um, these... Regimes really echoing one another's disinformation and amplifying each other's narratives um, in a sort of unholy alliance, if you will, around sort of you know really really um, dubious information.
0: So, Laura, foreign interference in the twenty twenty election. Give us kind of the big picture. How are you thinking about the overall threat to the election and our democracy during this? special period and how does it compare, uh, so far at least to 2016 and
2: 2018? Sure. Well, I think, you know, when we talk about foreign interference in the election, let me start by, talk, by sort of breaking down the component parts of what we're talking about and what that might involve. So one component part is the information operations or disinformation piece, which we were just talking about in the COVID-19 context, but we've also seen, um, very much in the past, in terms of the campaign or election process. Now, I think one thing for folks to bear in mind is a lot of what we've seen in general. Um, In terms of, for instance, Russia's information operations around the 2016 election was actually engaging on content that really on its surface didn't have anything to do with the election directly, was much more aimed at um, amplifying divisions within our society and and maybe sort of suppressing people's interest in, in participating in the democratic process. But the information operations piece is one component of that. Um, there's also, of course, concerns about um, cyber attacks and cyber attacks on several different pieces of, you know, related to elections and campaigns. One, of course, is election infrastructure. And we now know, um, in fact, that in, in the 2016 cycle, that um, Russian military intelligence actors actually made attempts to get into parts of the election system of all 50 states. So, so threats on election infrastructure, and that's not just the voting machines, by the way, that can be things like the voter rolls, that can be things like websites for reporting um, election results, all of that's part of election infrastructure. Of course, we also um, have seen cyber attacks to steal in information and then weaponize it in a public release from uh, political candidates, uh, parties, um, and those affiliated with them in the past. So that's another piece of it. And then a third piece of it that I think we talk about less, but that certainly I think merits um, some focus, is um, the ability for um, covert foreign money to get into our political system and to be funneled to candidates in a non-transparent way or to um, the many different organizations that in a U.S. election context can take part, right? So the many PACs and super PACs and, you know, there's 527 organizations, all these different parts of our system that can advocate for a particular candidate or on particular issues. We have some vulnerabilities there. So that's the sort of threat landscape, if you will, in terms of, of the, the tools. How do I see those playing out in 2020? Well, one of the biggest concerns I have about the 2020 election is, in fact, the degree to which our own domestic divisions have, number one, made it very challenging for us to respond effectively to any foreign interference if it were to occur and if it is occurring, which I, I, you know, I think most assessments are that it is at least some level. Um, and two, you know, that divided society really provides such a ripe environment for these kinds of manipulative tactics. And I guess actually one more point on that is that, you know, again, this relates to the COVID conversation, the, the sort of polluted information environment that we see in general, um, whether it's around COVID, whether it's around a whole host of other issues, again, really makes for a, a little bit of a, a tinderbox, if you will, where it doesn't take that much to, to really exacerbate or, or, um, blow open some of the challenges that we have domestically. So the, the big pick peak, sorry, the big picture piece for me is that when it comes to Russia, for instance, you know, I, the way I think about this is that, um, you know, their operation in 2016 kind of set a, a blaze. Um, we were already smoldering and they came in and, and really sort of set off a blaze. And that blaze, we've now just continued to feed ourselves. And at this point, I see, you know, a little bit of, of um, accelerant being squirted around the edges to amplify the, the blaze that's raging in one way or another, um, just a little bit. But um, but I, I think that it's, it's that sort of um, directed, more narrow scale over the top stuff um, on top of mm-hmm. what we're already doing to ourselves.
0: So when you think about who the actors might be, Laura, obviously Russia, is there anybody else that you're looking at that you're worried about playing this game as well?
2: So Russia, of course, I think remains the most aggressive, um, when it comes to operations that are really taking aim at elections and election infrastructure and electoral processes. Um, there are other nation states that certainly have the capabilities to engage in some of these kinds of tactics. Iran is one. Um, they have a pretty well developed, um, you know, disinformation, uh, strategy that we we see um, surfacing pretty regularly. Now they're a little ham-handed and they get caught a lot, but they do certainly have that capability, and they also have um, you know some some not insignificant um, cyber capabilities that they could use um, should they choose to do so. Um, now while they have the capabilities, you know I think the question is: Have we seen the intentions there? And, you know, the answer is that we've occasionally seen some political related content in um, some of the, you know, posts, if we want to talk about the information operation space, some of the posts that have been identified by social media companies as being, um, you know, originating from Iranian state backed information operations, you know, again, sort of maybe toying around with some of how they can engage in the political space. Um, But it seems mostly like experimentation. At this point, rather than anything that's that's super super concerted, China is of course another actor that has significant capability here. Um, we talked, you know, in the COVID context about some of these information operations that they're engaging in. On that front, though, most of what we see from China in the info op space um, remains largely overt. There have been instances um, of reports of covert activity. You know, including in the COVID context, um, the use of automated accounts uh, to boost usually pro-China content, you know, under sort of false personas is typically what the reports talk about. Um, But of course, the intelligence community, um, at least according to The New York Times, concluded that Chinese operatives were involved in amplifying false text messages about COVID lockdowns um, several months ago in the U.S., So we've seen some development of that more covert capacity, which is probably, you know, what is much more needed if you're going to engage in sophisticated election interference kind of operations. And of course, China is well known to engage in significant, um, you know, cyber activity, um, in particular targeting commercial interests and intellectual property. And there's been reports about whether China's engaging in cyber theft of um, vaccine-related research. But that's, again, on the capability side. On the intention side, you know, my own view is that I've seen very little that indicates that Beijing would have an interest in aggressively um, or concertedly interfering in our election. Um, And in general, we haven't seen much from them historically. In terms of election interference, Um, we have, of course, seen them engage in some of these activities on Taiwan, um, although the 2020 um, presidential election on Taiwan actually had much less of that kind of activity than folks were anticipating. We've also seen some activity using that financial bucket that I mentioned earlier to uh, cultivate certain pro-China politicians in places like Australia, where there's been several large scandals about um, about some of this Chinese political interference there. But again, that's been much more about cultivating individuals um, as part of a longer term strategy versus around a, a particular election. So while we're certainly in a point where China is becoming much more yeah. aggressive externally, and it's possible that they could Decide that it's in their interest to um, engage in a full-on election interference operation. I, to date, have seen no evidence of that, or or of their intention to do so.
0: We're going to take a quick break. I'm going to be right back with more of our discussion with Laura
1: Rosenberg.er Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
0: Grill, patio, sunset—hard to get better than that. do a quick reminder for our listeners on what the objectives are at the end of the day of these adversaries who are trying to weaken our democracy.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple, actually. Um, It's to weaken us. Um, Their fundamental goal is to weaken us by undermining our democratic institutions and democratic processes that are so core to who we are as a nation, and our ability to um, protect and advance our interests. You know, some of that involves actually, you know, undermining, we talked earlier about undermining the idea of truth. Um, Some of that really involves undermining people's faith in the election process itself is something that's free and fair, or in the outcome of the election. Um, But that's, that's really the core goal. You know, I think different actors may have Additional goals that come along with that, certainly the intelligence community concluded in 2016 that Russia had a few additional goals, um, including to, you know, hurt the candidacy of, of Secretary Clinton and to um, help the candidacy of Donald Trump. But the, the piece about undermining our institutions, I think, is one that is, is sort of the, the supreme one and, and really, you know, as a means of weakening us.
0: Yeah, and then what about methods? Are we seeing Laura an evolution of tactics on the part of the adversaries? Are they? Do you do you see them adapting to our defenses? You know, are we playing the the old war and they're playing a new war? How do you think about that?
2: Yeah, Michael, I'm really concerned about that. Um, You know, I think certainly. You know, to break it down just a little bit. Well, I should say to start, I I don't think that the plays that we will see, you know, from Russia in 2020, or if others decide to get in this game as well, that they will look like the 2016 plays. Um, You know, certainly the kind of large scale, you know, Russian Internet research agency social media activity um, that we saw in 2016, um, we really don't see much of that anymore. You know, what we tend to see at this point on uh, sort of certainly from from Russian actors on the social media side is um, much more targeted operations, uh, operations that seek to cultivate um, sort of intermediary actors to uh, carry out their operations on their behalf. So, for instance, one of the most recently identified such operations involved Russian um, actors recruiting um, nonprofit organizations in Africa to engage U.S. social media users on issues of race and racism. That was a more targeted operation. It was using these proxies in a very different way. A lot of that's to evade detection. Um, we've we've seen, of course, the social media companies take some steps to crack down on these activities, and so some of this is is really about evading detection. We have seen the sort of recruitment, sometimes unwittingly, sometimes wittingly, of um, actual individuals within a targeted society. So for instance, in Ukraine, around their elections, um, a few years ago, there was uh, you know evidence that um, Russian actors, you know, basically bought Facebook pages of real Ukrainians um, in order to use in those kinds of operations. But it's it's these much more targeted, Operations sometimes um, leaning in more to actually push a very particular narrative versus this more broad brush kind of divisive, chaos inducing sort of tactic. And the last piece I would say, and you know, this is a little bit hard to know with certainty from an open source only perspective um, without access to, to other reporting, but it does appear that we have seen more engagement in these tactics by Russian intelligence agencies, in addition to the Internet Research Agency, which is of course a sort of non-government, but sort of closely connected entity. And we saw the the GRU engage in some of this in 2016, largely um, alongside the the WikiLeaks um, effort. But the other thing we saw then that we see a little bit more of now is the promotion and, and sort of, well, I should say development and promotion of um, sort of fake think tanks, fake uh, journalists, fake experts, essentially, who then masquerade um, as real authorities. And and that's typically operations that we've seen run by Russian intelligence units um, in, in carrying those out. So, so a little bit of a shift in method and, and a little bit also of, of sort of who's doing the the engagement there. And again, that may be because the intelligence agencies have a little bit of a more honed ability to, to hide their tracks uh, on that front.
0: So Laura, what about approaches to election systems? Are we still seeing that? And have we seen any different kinds of approaches than what we saw in 2016?
2: So we haven't seen any reporting yet, at least publicly um, in this election cycle. Of attempts on election systems. There were some reports around the the 2018 midterms, you know, of of attempts, um, nothing successful, um, and in a few other elections that have happened in the interim period. In 2020, we haven't seen any reports so far of the targeting of electoral infrastructure. It is an area where we frankly have a lot more visibility than we did in 2016. So, um, there's been um, you know, something called Albert sensors installed um, on networks um, that enable um, much better detection of network intrusions um, around election systems to hopefully alert authorities much earlier if such attempts are being made. So we certainly haven't seen that yet. But I'll say, you know, to, to just sort of paint out one of my nightmare scenarios Um, which relates to election infrastructure, relates to disinformation, and it also, frankly, at this point, relates to COVID. You know, your listeners may recall that when the app that was being used for the Iowa caucuses malfunctions, there was this immediate panic, not just about the delayed reporting, um, but, you know, the speculation immediately went to, was there a hack? Was was there malfeasance here? Um, did somebody seek to actually sabotage things, whether foreign or domestic? And you had people on the news media who were speculating about such things. Um, and you actually had a couple of candidates um, who raised questions about whether that had occurred. And in fact, what we know is that simply it was a really, really poorly designed app um, that completely just malfunctioned. And we had all the data and it took a much longer period, but we found out who won the Iowa caucuses. And we have a lot of faith in the integrity of that data. What I worry about is a scenario in which, you know, a lot of states are um, enabling much greater um, absentee voting um, or mail voting for the November election, rightly so, to help support people's ability to safely vote, um, particularly if we see a second wave um, of the pandemic in the fall. Um, But that's going to mean a much slower process to count the ballots. And there's a very good chance that we're not going to know the results right away. And you combine that with potentially a bit of disinformation about what's gone on and or um, a couple of attempts maybe they don't even have to be successful on some election infrastructure here or there, um, which gets either publicized by um, the US government or by a foreign actor who's, you know, been engaging in that activity. And you have a bit of a toxic mix of the potential for, essentially, before the results are even announced, foreign actors to stir up doubt in the outcome. And in fact, we know that this was a play the Russians were prepared to run in 2016 had Donald Trump lost. Um, democracy RIP was the hashtag they were planning to use. And they were going to talk about the rigged election and all of that. So, you know, that's an area where I think we need to be doing much more between now and November to prepare the public, to prepare the media, to prepare candidates, um, to resist that kind of temptation to feed into any process that would raise doubts without any cause, um, about the outcome of the election.
0: So Laura, you talked earlier about the things that we do ourselves that make us more vulnerable. And you mentioned obviously the, 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 the many divisions, right. That, that we've allowed to fester. Are there more specific things, that you worry about that we're doing that open us up and make us vulnerable? Or is it just that general point?
2: Well, I, I think many of them fall under that general point, but I certainly think there are some specific things that we're doing. The first thing is, um, you know, I think that we have a a media environment and an information environment um, where virality is supreme And that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be the most um, fact-based assertion or that it has to be, um, you know, the most uh, sort of balanced perspective. In fact, it's the very opposite um, that is what tends to break through. And, And so there you then have the incentivization for some political actors to weaponize information themselves, to use disinformation in their own campaigning, uh, in their own rhetoric, um, and and really devalue truth. And so that is one thing that makes me very worried, um, again, that makes us much more vulnerable. I think another thing um, that we're doing, frankly, is politicizing foreign interference. The more that we politicize you know, foreign interference, the more we're playing very directly into the strategy of our adversaries, which is to divide us. One of the most important things we could do um, that would undercut the effectiveness of these activities is to stand together and, and responding or politicizing foreign interference really actually does our adversaries work for them um, and makes it, you know, very, very difficult for us uh, to respond. You know, I think another thing that we're doing is, um, you know, making it harder to vote again really is the antithesis of of having sort of a strong and robust democratic process. And it feeds people's perceptions um, that the process isn't fair or that it's rigged. And and the last thing, you know, that I, I think that we're doing, you know, to ourselves, um, you know, in a way that, that makes us more vulnerable is that in fact, our divisions are really preventing our government from responding. Um, and we've seen that in the COVID context. And, and when you have adversaries that are trying to weaken us by saying that democratic institutions don't work um, and, and to undermine them, you know, when we fail to show people that government works and is providing results for them, Again, I think that just makes us much more vulnerable to the very kinds of tactics that our adversaries are are trying to engage in.
0: So let's switch gears here a little bit and talk about how prepared we are for this as a country. And if you think about if you think about Laura a scale from 1 to 10 in terms of, you know, 0 being, you know, not prepared at all and 10 being, you know, exactly where you'd want to be where do you think we were in 2016 where do you think we were in 2018 and where do you think we are today on that scale how do you think about that
2: so it's a compli i want to complicate your scale a, a little bit which is not <laughs> what you want me to do but okay. um, but, uh, but what i would say is there's how prepared we are in terms of the steps that we've taken um to address these issues and then there's how prepared we are Sorry, and then there's how prepared we are in terms of our own societal resilience, and I think okay. those are two somewhat different components. Um, on the on the first part, you know, in terms of the steps that we've taken to to recognize and address these issues, I would say in 2016 we were pretty much at a zero, maybe a one, and you know, there's a report. Well, there's been a series of reports from the bipartisan, you know, Senate Select uh, Intelligence Committee that has documented, you know, a number of different aspects of Russia's interference operations in 2016, including the challenges that the Obama administration faced in putting together a response, um, which I think really shows just really how flat footed we, uh, we were caught. In 2018, I guess maybe we were at a three um, in terms of, of level of preparedness. Um, maybe today we're at a four.
0: Wow. So a long way to go.
2: Maybe a five, but the five would be, I think, still a little bit with this caution of like the last battle, right? That we've maybe prepared a lot for what we've seen, but we don't know what's coming. Yeah. a, A lot, a lot more to go. A lot more to go. Um, you know, on the, but on the resilience piece, um, you know, how, how, prepared are we as a society to be able to resist these kinds of, um, these kinds of activities. I I actually think we've gone backwards there. And I think that we're even more vulnerable today um, and less resilient today than we were, than we were four years ago. Um, But I want to make one point here, which I think is really important, which is that, um, that, you know, lack of preparedness should in no way, I think, um, hinder people's interest and desire to participate in the democratic process. In fact, one of the, you know, I get asked a lot, what can you know, American voters do? Like what can the American people do themselves um, to help push back on these kinds of activities? And genuinely one of the most important things that people can do to resist or push back on foreign interference is to participate in the democratic process. Um, what our adversaries want is for people um, for people to walk away from the process and to to not engage and to lose faith, and so engaging in the process is one of the most important things that people can do to, in fact, resist this kind of um, activity and make it, um, you know, far less effective.
0: And if you're hearing a dog barking in the background, that is Laura's dog, who is uh, very special, very special girl, right?
2: She is, and I'm sorry about that. But there, there clearly no, it is, is some squirrels laying siege to the house.
0: It is, it is, it is doing podcasts in the age of COVID. Um, you get to know people's uh, pets, which is terrific. Yep. So, Laura, you've been you've been great with your time. Is this a new normal that we're going to have to deal with for the foreseeable future, or do you think we're going to get to a place where we're able to get our arms around this? Um, make it not worth the while of the adversaries, raise the cost to them of doing this and shut this down. What's, what's your sense? What's possible?
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's probably somewhere in between those two things. Um, I, I do think that this is largely a, a new normal. And I should say that you know the the kinds of of operations we've been talking about today. You know, I believe are taking place in the context of a much broader contest that is taking shape um, between authoritarian systems and democratic systems um, on the geopolitical stage. And the use of these kinds of of tactics, the engagement in these kinds of operations, are one means um, for our authoritarian competitors and adversaries um, to undermine democratic systems. And so, you know, if you think about it from what their interests are and what our interests are, um, it's not really going to be in their interests in that kind of system struggle to back off of these sort of operations. Now, does that mean that um, we just need to deal with them and put up with them and accept them at the level that we currently see them? No. Um, Do I think that we can number one, do a lot of things to reduce their effectiveness, largely focused on building resilience within ourselves? Absolutely. Can we raise the costs and maybe deter at least particularly some of the high-end aspects of these activities? Yes. Is one of the most important things we could be doing working together with our democratic allies who are facing similar challenges around the world? Absolutely. Um, And so, you know, I do think that we can do a lot more to both blunt these activities and maybe, maybe get them to, um, you know, to, to, see a reduction in them, at least in terms of, uh, you know, scope and, and, and scale. Um, but I, I, don't think that we're going to see the ability to eliminate them. Um, and so I think that means, you know, taking some, some real stock, um, within our own, um, of how we can, um, in ways consistent with democratic principles, and in ways that bolster um, democratic institutions, actually define some of our own advantages in this contest um, with authoritarian actors that enable us um, to push back more aggressively on, on their system, um, which, of course, they're also, in many cases, um, seeking to, you know, to, to push out to other parts of the world. So, I, so that, that's kind of how I, I see it in that bit of a complicated picture.
0: Yeah. Just one more, one more quick question, Laura. Should we play this game? Should should we push back by pushing disinformation into their societies or not? What's your sense?
2: Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's a losing prospect for us. Um, And, you know, for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, this is an asymmetric battlefield. By definition, we are at a disadvantage. Um, Here, authoritarians value the control and manipulation of information. We value its free and open exchange. And so for us to try to outdo them, um, it's just a losing prospect. We're never going to go as far, number one. And number two, democracy will be the loser. Um, and so you know, if winning at all costs is the objective, sure maybe. But if um, defending and protecting and advancing democracy is the goal, which I believe it should be, um then then we should not be engaging in these kinds of, of tactics. Now, should we be seeking to have a much more focused information strategy that's affirmative, rooted in truth, rooted in transparency, um, that's aimed at preventing information voids from developing? Where others can fill it with um, dubious information, we should absolutely be doing that. But but trying to go tit for tat here, it's it's just a race to the bottom, and we yeah. will lose. Yeah.
0: Laura, thank you so much for joining us. You're incredibly insightful, and this is an incredibly important issue. So thank you for taking the time to uh, to talk to us today.
2: Well, thanks, Michael, for for having me and my my dog's guest appearance as well.
0: That was Laura Rosenberger. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
1: This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell, brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio.